This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. We'll have a conversation about outsourcing, whether it works, and how it can work for you. Our sponsor is Sertronics, and it promises to be a great conversation. For more information, go to devicetalks.com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time listening, great to have you here. We have a great episode coming up a little later in the show. I'm going to speak with Mike Coyle, the CEO of iRhythm. iRhythm has made some news recently, and Mike came aboard as CEO earlier this year. We talked about that transition. We talked about how iRhythm is handling some recent challenges in reimbursements. A really great conversation. Before that, we're going to uh, introduce something new. I'm just going to say that. We'll introduce it later in the program, but uh, I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, it's a great addition to the Device Talks universe. But now, without any further delay, it's time to bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker. Chris, you're, you're smoking like two cigarettes and drinking three cups of coffee. Is it Chris, is it earnings week this week? Man, you are, you are, well, not the cigarettes, you know, I've been, I've been off cigarettes for 20 years, but it is earnings week. <laughs> it is earnings week for sure. And yes, I am drinking a lot of coffee. Like, how, how is earnings week going? I, I cleaned, I made sure to clean the coffee maker and, uh, you know, I got, uh, you know, new, uh, you know, make sure that like, we had fresh coffee so we could like really, really brew a good pot. Cause you know, with the, the earnings reports are rolling out this week. I can see you on Sunday night. You've got everything in a row. You got all your filters lined up. You've got the, co- the coffee pot clean. You've got a new, got new it, man. bag of coffee and you're just like push go on Monday morning. Even even change the charcoal filter because, you know, it's a fancy coffee pot. We got it at Costco. So, you know. Bloody does, as my dad would used to say. Charcoal filter. <laughs> All right. We're going to hit upon the new markets, newsmakers in a moment. But anything, uh, any takeaways from earnings or is it still a little early in the in the earnings game to to give us a, a report? Well, we can talk a little bit more about it. We actually have an earnings report in the uh, in the new markers, newsmakers. But, you know, really, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the earnings are uh, better than expected. Uh, you know, uh, we, the U.S., I mean, we got set back uh, with the pandemic in, in January and February, um, just, just you know, even, you know, with that that previous wave. But um, it looks like, uh, you know, it looks like the, the, the procedure volume was, was okay for the device companies, you know. So, you know, I think, um, you know, it looks like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of reason to be uh, optimistic this year. It's maybe like hospitals have gotten it under control, you know, that they can kind of do the things that they did normally at the same time they're, you know, dealing with this uh, terrible pandemic. Well, well, we'll check in every week on the podcast on how the earnings are doing, but let's uh, let's now roll into this week's New Markers Newsmakers. So number five on the list, uh, we've got a uh, roundup of the uh, 10 largest orthopedic device companies in the world. It ran in full on our sister site, Medical Design Outsourcing. Uh, it's by yours truly. Woohoo! Yeah, and what I did was I went through the uh, annual reports of uh, the world's largest medical device companies. And uh, I guess kind of... <sighs> 
not too much of a surprise, but I mean, they really took a hit last year. Um, you know, if you're talking about elective procedures, I mean, knee replacements, hip replacements, those are near the top of the list. And a lot of them saw double digit percentage declines in, uh, in revenue last year. Um, interestingly enough, though, one of the big exceptions to the rule was Stryker. I mean, they were only down 3% last year. So I mean, that, that's actually quite quite an accomplishment for uh, for Stryker. Um, you know, another interesting thing was I talked to a lot of analysts about these results and uh, and uh you know, one takeaway was that, uh, was that, you know, I mean, Zimmer Biomet, yeah, double digit declines in revenue last year, but um, they're doing, uh, they're doing a lot. Um, they're, they're really up in the competition. So it's going to be neat to see how they come out of this, uh, this pandemic, you know, because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're coming out with the uh, first uh, smart knee implant later this year. They're, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of patched together all their robotic and digital surgery stuff in this new ZB Edge package. And, you know, and they're spinning off their, you know, dental and spine business too, to kind of like really like focus on those core ortho areas that they've got. So, you know, it should, it should be neat to see where things go with them. You know, we'll have some more, more competition in the space among the big companies. Yeah, this is a great job. Great list. I, I clicked through them. I was uh, surprised at some of the the ranks and placements, and uh, I thought the revenue uh, changes were were very interesting. And, and you're right about Striker. It's uh, I don't know if it's the 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 success they had in placing Makos or what, but uh, I think Mako is seem, a big reason. Yeah, they seem to weather the storm better than a lot of them. So, uh, but a few other strong performers. So it's definitely a list people should uh, should take a look at. Yeah, sounds sounds good. So uh, bring us to number four, Chris Newmarker. Number four on the list ran in full on pharmaceutical processing world. And this was like FDA releasing a scathing inspection report about the uh, emergent biosolutions plant in uh, in Baltimore. This was the the plant we we were all hoping was going to make a ton of J&J and AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, this is outrageous. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, just a laundry list of uh, problems that the, uh, the inspectors, uh, you know, found just a lot of things that need to get uh, fixed fixed over there. In the meantime, they already dumped 15 million doses of J&J vaccine. Um, there was a lot of more being held and FDA said they were going to inspect that, you know, to see if they can release that. Um, so hopefully we'll get some J&J vaccine out there that can get into people's arms. Um, and uh, in, the, in the meantime, the CDC and the uh, FDA have been, you know, having a, a pause in J&J vaccine while, uh, you know, while we they look at, uh, you know, the, the really rare blood clotting issues uh, around it, though it doesn't, it doesn't look like there've been that many more cases. So we might, may lift it. So that could be, um, I got my J&J jab. I'm perfectly happy with it. I'm feeling good, but I'm not, I'm not a big, my tax dollars guy, but the fact that HHS committed yeah. over 600 million to emergent last year to be ready for this. And they've got all these problems. It's just, I don't know if it all got to the company, if it was just committed to the company, but it's just outrageous. It just, I mean, I recall reading that actually like it goes back. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Obama yes, administration. Right. They they yeah. actually lined them up like to have them ready, to have them ready to go. You're our, yeah. If we need a vaccine, cause we've got a pandemic, you're our, you know, well, yeah, they just, yeah, the plant, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the inspection reports talking about it, like the, the plant wasn't big enough. Um, you know, they were just talking about like problems with decontamination because paint was peeling. Um, there, there was the the stuff about the people in the warehouse dragging barrels on the floor. <laughs> I mean, like it's just yeah. Some, but I, I know J and J's, you know, in charge of the manufacturing there now. So like, oh, I mean, here, fingers crossed, they can. Um, you know, get get stuff righted over there. We can um, even up our vaccine supply even more. It's also, it's also an interesting contrast just to the, the calls for the relaxation of IP for these vaccines with the notion that if you do that, they can be made everywhere and made quickly. I, I don't know where I stand on whether they should be relaxed or not, but this just demonstrates that you, you just can't make these things anywhere. These, these need to be 
right. really well regulated uh, uh, facilities. And the shame is that the, the site visit wasn't done to this this company before we committed more money to to their efforts. So yeah, I don't think we should have the uh, the start of a homebrew vaccine industry. Yeah, that's a great craft craft like, vaccines. Not- yes. Like it's craft, you know, like the guy with the punk rock t-shirt, you know, and the blue jeans made it for me in his basement. You know, it's great. It's good stuff. Yeah, they could have they could have cool names and really cool uh cool yeah. cool um, packaging. So uh, that that might be something that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah, sounds sounds good. We should it's the new uh new startup space. <laughs> Chris, before, before we get into uh into number three, uh, I wanted to uh we're gonna we're gonna introduce a uh, a spin out. From the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, Chris, we have a spin out. Oh wow! Yeah. You're spinning it we out have, already. Yeah, wow. We've had uh, well, had one guest slash guests who have been uh, popular enough that they warranted their own show. So we're going to. Uh, Do you have a branded spinner for the Device Talks Weekly spin <laughs> If people go so to cool. devicetalks.com backslash tacky merch. They can find yeah, their, their device talk spinner. <laughs> That's Great. tacky merch. Yes. Tacky merch. Yes. I'll tell you what, here's what we're going to do. After we play our break music, you're going to hear the very beginning of our new podcast. You're going to hear the introduction, and you're going to hear a part of the first interview. To hear the rest of the interview, you'll have to go over to Device Talks and find the new podcast, or you'll be able to find it on all of the podcast platforms where you find Device Talks. So let's go. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest member of the Device Talks podcast family. It's called Medtronic Talks. Our constant search to find new ways to bring you insights in the medtech industry led us to the fine, fine folks at Medtronic. They've agreed to make their senior leaders available to us and to you. In each episode, we'll discuss the opportunities and challenges facing one of medtech's clear leaders, so you'll have an inside view on what makes Medtronic go. We'll ask the questions, Medtronic will provide the answers, and our great network of sponsors makes it all possible. So sit back, hop on a treadmill, take the dog for a walk, whatever you do when you listen to a great podcast and let's listen to how Medtronic is getting the job done. Let's go. Thanks again for joining us on the Medtronic Talks podcast. Today, we'll focus on Medtronic's respiratory interventions business. This is a discussion brought to you by Propel. Our first guests of this Medtronic's Talk podcast are Ariel McTavish. Ariel is the president of respiratory interventions at Medtronic and Dr. John DeChapel. He is vice president and chief medical officer for the Americas at Medtronic. A year ago, Ariel and John were among those leading Medtronic's internal and external responses to the rising COVID-19 pandemic. In this interview, we'll hear what they saw, but more important, what they did to help Medtronic answer the call for ventilators and other critical needs. But first, we'll talk with Chuck Serin. He is Vice President of Industry Marketing for MedTech and Life Sciences at Propel, a maker of a cloud-based tool to manage product development. Chuck, please tell us more about Propel and what it offers. Propel is a product success platform that really enables companies to build better, safer, and more effective products and bring those products to market faster. We really do this from concept to customer and cover the entire product lifecycle. And, and also, we're uniquely a QMS, a PLM, and a PIM, or commercialization solution all on one platform. So we eliminate what's commonly three disparate systems and eliminate those huge gaps in data leakage and connect these systems, people, processes to reduce the cost of quality. We also enable you to design, make, market, and sell and service your products. So being natively built on Salesforce, we really unify that product quality service and customer records for true enterprise collaboration into the sales and service clouds. And then rest assured, being built on the Salesforce platform, we also give you all that security, scalability, analytics, and reporting 
in a very highly extensible to your processes. All right, we'll hear more from Chuck Saren and Propel a little later in the podcast. Now, let's hear from Ariel McTavish and John DeChapel, our first guests on Medtronic Talks. Don DeChapel and Ariel McTavish, welcome to Medtronic Talks. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks, Tom. So we're about a year removed from when the world shut down, and it was a time when we all found different ways to work, and we can maybe get into that a little later. But one thing that clearly happened that happened immediately was an area of medtech that really maybe didn't get as much attention as it might have in terms of innovation and ideas, and just consideration was respiratory and, and, and ventilation. I've covered medtech for a long time. I could probably count on one hand how many stories I've written about innovative technologies in ventilators. We've assumed that they're, we're assumed they're going to work. They very rarely get the center stage and get under the spotlight. All of that changed uh, a year ago. And I want to just understand how, if you can recall a year back, sort of how the, the crisis set upon you and Medtronic broadly, but also the businesses you work in in Medtronic. Like, what was the first indication to you that this was going to be a, a, a call that you had to answer? At the very beginning of the year, in January, we definitely were getting signals that from China that they were having this outbreak of this disease and it required ventilators um, in the ICU and that there was an inordinate demand and clinical need there. So the initial phase of it for us was really diverting all of our allocation of ventilators from the normal global customers to China for clinical reasons and really explaining to all of our existing um, customers and deals that we uh, needed to allocate the ventilators there. But at that moment, I don't think any of us saw certainly the um, expansion of that beyond China, which was to come in the coming months. And then, of course, subsequently to that, as the pandemic continued to spread around the globe, we ended up with similar kinds of demands coming from all over customers all over the world that needed ventilators right away. There was also so, like you said, there wasn't so much of an understanding of, of ventilation. There was a lot of confusion of, between a respirator and a ventilator, for example. There was definitely a lot of misunderstanding of, of, how, of quantities and what was really required and what degree the crisis would be. So we were working through all of that in, say, the March-April timeframe. And then when it, for our business in particular, it was really in March when not only did we have the shutdown of our facilities and the lockdown of staying home, but right at that same moment, we started to do daily calls um, with the ventilator to technical team combined with our executive leadership team to address these daily kinds of requests and communication that was out there. So yes, reflecting back a year, is a, it was a very um, intense moment in that March-April timeframe for sure. And John, I want to get to you in a moment just to talk more about Medtronic, but Errol, I'm just curious, was it clear early on that this is going to require some extraordinary actions or, or did you hope that did you have any sense of what, how big the wave was that was coming? We definitely knew extraordinary action would be required. And we were just, I think, trying to do what we could do. And we very soon centered on the fact that um, serving as many patients as possible, getting as many um, ventilators out to patients that needed it was our uh, call to action. And that served us well. Um, we could only do what we could do. We knew that we, there was no way we would be able to serve all the demand as a single company. And that really informed a lot of the work we did. We scaled as rapidly as possible internally with our own uh, manufacturing facilities, but we also worked with partners to try to expand um, different areas of by sharing our ventilation IP, allowing others to manufacture it, giving good advice to others to try to ramp that up and bringing vents out of service. So there were, we definitely knew there was it was extraordinary times that we needed to deliver. And John, you're going to bring two different 
perspectives of the conversation, let's first hit upon your role as a physician. You're still practicing and uh, explain to me how your life changed a year ago in that regard. And then we can understand a bit better how it, how everything impacted Medtronic on a whole. But as a physician, what, what happened to you? Yeah, I'm a general surgeon practicing in New York City, principally on the weekends because Medtronic is my full-time job. And so when I work on the weekends, um, working here in New York, what I got to see sequentially from each time they came to the hospital was just how bad it was getting. And as you recall, New York, and particularly the hospital that I worked at, was labeled to be the epicenter of the epidemic. And what I saw there was a transformation like I hope I never see again for the rest of my life, where we had to create ICUs where there were no ICUs, whether it was uh, a woman's health center or a recovery room, all of a sudden became an ICU. One, two, five, seven ICUs popped up around the hospital. We had to bring in clinicians from all around the country to help us staff it. We had one ICU was staffed by the Air Force, another one by the Navy. And it got so bad that a general surgeon like myself who does trauma surgery at the hospital had to actually run one of the COVID ICUs, which is challenging enough if you're not an intensivist to be running an ICU. But these are some of the sickest patients any intensivist would ever manage in their whole career. And then yet we were thrown into it as general surgeons managing these COVID ICUs. And so I, I got to see it up close and that really helped inform me for the work that I did for Medtronic and helping guide our company through our crisis response. And what was your role in, in guiding and, and helping to develop that response? I, I remember it pretty distinctly, getting a call from a member of our executive committee on January 29th to be exact, uh, saying, hey, we, we don't know what we need, but we need you involved in the company's crisis response. And we want you to be the medical leader. So I became the chief medical officer for the company's COVID crisis response team. And that role has evolved, not just over those first few weeks, but over the last year. I would characterize the outset of then epidemic as a period of great uncertainty. And we knew that we needed to educate ourselves as fast as possible. So we reached out to experts around the world to teach us so that we could at the same time protect our employees while still making the life-saving medical equipment that that we need to make for the well-being of patients around the world, whether they're COVID patients, uh, such as Ariel's business with ventilators, or other businesses that supply products that are for urgent procedures, such as cardiac valves and stents and such. So it was a real challenge to balance the two, protecting our 90,000 employees around the world, ensuring their safety at the same time, meeting our commitment to patients by continuing to make life-saving medical devices. And you have obviously employees on the ground in across the world, people in China as well. I'm wondering, did you gain insights from there? Did, how much did you rely upon insights and experiences from Medtronic's global employees in understanding what was going to be hitting your U.S. offices and, and businesses? One thing that we did right at the beginning was form what I like to call a private public health service. So we're fortunate at Medtronic to have a lot of doctors and nurses in our employ. And so we created regional medical teams. And so our China team, for example, became formed very quickly and worked very closely with our commercial leadership to understand how the epidemic was impacting 
our employees throughout China, we quickly set up a, a system where we contacted each and every one of our several thousand employees in China twice a week to ask them whether they had symptoms that might suggest that they had COVID. And if they did, then we had one of our doctors on the phone with them to better understand what they were experiencing, how we could get them help, and how we could keep them safe, and also keep them isolated from other employees. So we developed this internal public health service. That model really served us well when the disease then started to impact Europe and other geographies around the world. And Ariel, how did that uh, impact your the, the ventilator business? I, I have to imagine that you were all on alert that as essential can be. What, how did you manage that going forward? Yeah, the work that John and his team did was instrumental and two things. One was the ability to scale up the manufacture. And our ventilators are all manufactured in Ireland, but we have the circuits and filters that are manufactured in Italy. So a hotspot there as well as in uh, Mexico. So as the pandemic spread to those areas, there was a, a lot of high risk and a lot of regulations that were put in place, either trying to totally shut things down so that only essential workers could get through or at least putting some kind of social distancing and other regulations and checks in place. There had to be the ability to immediately respond to the regulations country by country, as well as our government affairs team for Medtronic was front and center as well in coordinating with the governments to allow these essential workers to get to the facilities so that they could actually build the products that were required everywhere. And I think that we all felt, you know, very reassured by the fact that the employee safety was at the heart of everything. And again, the work that John and his team did was very well recognized across the organization. And I think it gave um, our employees a sense of security that they could go into the workplace and that their right measures would be in place to keep them safe. I hope you enjoyed that little introduction to our newest podcast in the Device Talks family. Once again, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. You can subscribe to Medtronic Talks there. You can also find it on our Device Talks site. And of course, uh, Medtronic will have it up on their site as well. So welcome to the family, Medtronic Talks. And uh, we look forward to bringing you those, uh, those conversations. We'll actually send out episode two through the Device Talks channel next week. So we'll have a bonus podcast. But once again, I do ask you to subscribe at all the major podcast channels. All right, Chris Newmarker, let's go to number three on Newmarker's Newsmakers. Hey, number three on the list. We're into earnings now. We got uh, Intuitive Surgical. Uh, their stock rose like nearly ten uh, percent on uh, on on Wednesday, a, a day after they uh, you know report uh, reported first quarter results that like handily beat beat what Wall Street was expecting. And, you know, for their first quarter, their um, their bottom line was up more than a third year over year. Their sales were up nearly eighteen percent year over year. You know, like uh, like their their CEO is cautioning that you know recovery is uneven as you know we we try to get our way out of this pandemic. Uh, he really uh, he recalled really it a, a step in the right direction. So um, yeah, it's, it's really good news there. Um, you know, just just some you know more reason to be really optimistic about you know what about how the the medical device industry is going to be uh, performing this year. It would be it would be very time consuming, but I think very interesting if we went through all of these reports, listed the discrepancy between what Wall Street was expecting and what actually happened, and then comparing it to past years and just seeing if analysts 
journalists have really any idea of what this recovery is going to look like. I mean, and, and I'm not not criticizing them, but yeah. who knows? I mean, right. Well, it's, we haven't recovered from a pandemic yeah, in over exactly. 100 years. I mean, so, there's no one alive. Well, there's a few people alive, but they're like, you know, they're they're eating applesauce in the, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the in retirement home right now. They're on <laughs> <I> mean, applesauce. <laughs> no, the, no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> No ragging on applesauce, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to to do. It's hard to be an analyst normally, let alone you know try to make predictions when you're coming out of something so so strange and just unusual we haven't been through. So yeah, it'll be it's interesting to see how the predictions go. All right, let's roll on to number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers list, Chris. Yeah, I mean, number two on the list, I've got uh, Medtronic uh, getting FDA approval for their uh, next. I've gen. heard of them. Yeah, yeah, Medtronic. Yeah, <laughs> you know. They, they do some stuff in the device space. Yeah. So anyway, they have an FDA approval. They've got a, you know, they, they've had their pipeline flex device that's been on the market in the U.S. for, you know, close to 10 years. You know, it, uh, it's designed to divert blood flow away from brain aneurysm. But, you know, this next gen version of it that got approval um, has this, uh, this shield technology that's like this proprietary materials tech that's, uh, you know, supposed to reduce the, the tendency of the, uh, of the material you know, surface treatment to uh, create blood clots. So, so, so very cool, you know, cause that's, it's always been like, you know, a, um, you know, you know, something that's been associated with cardio devices, you know, people have to take uh, blood thinners if they're on some, some devices. So just to, uh, you know, have something here that could, you know, reduce uh, the, those challenges. Uh, it sounds like, sounds like good news. Great stuff. Great, great med tech news. All right, Chris, bring it home. What's number one on the new Marcus Newsmakers list? Number one on the list, um, IPO. Woo-hoo! We've got Neuropaces IPO. Yeah, out of the gate on Thursday. I mean, their stock just st- skyrocketed. Um, they upsized what they were looking to get out of it. Um, you know, the the total gross proceeds they were they're going after yesterday was 102 million dollars. And uh, you know, this is a neurostem. It's uh, you know, that's it's touted uh, their RNS system is touted as the uh, world's only closed loop brain responsive neurostimulation system uh, designed to prevent uh, epileptic uh, seizures at their source. Oh, that's great. And this, I, I'll. I'll... Be honest, Chris. I think Neuropace probably is my first med tech crush. Like when I started wow. cutting in the sector, and you heard and you heard of a device, and it made you go, "That's so cool!" I think I think Neuropace's uh, ability to to not only sense but also treat epileptic seizures. I mean, this is just classic. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a condition that that that's that's Terrible. that's really detrimental to people's lives. And you're creating a device to, to help them. It's like that was the first time I, I I think I really one of the first times I really became enamored and excited about the yeah. sector that the fact that we're using technology for this and this was during the, the late 90s. So to everyone else, technology was ordering more cat food online or whatever the hell it was back right. then or, or Amazon was coming around. And this was technology being used for for the right reason. Coolcatphotos.com, you know? <laughs> exactly. yeah. You're like, like, wait, they're like bringing electricity to the brain to treat yeah, epilepsy. Yeah, that's... Now, yeah. cool. Really Coolcatphotos.com cool. probably went public in 1999 and, and, and was mm-hmm. able to stage yeah. an IPO three months after its founding. So as we can see, Neuropace and MedTech takes a little longer, but uh, the work they do is fantastic. And uh, yeah. great list, right. Chris. And, and congratulations in all seriousness to the folks at, at Neuropace. Uh, I know Frank Fisher's not CEO anymore, but Mike Fave is. And he's great. And uh, it's a great company and really happy that they found their way onto the public markets and look forward to, to more exciting product news from them in the future. All right. Well, now let's hear from Mike Coyle, the CEO of iRhythm. Well, Mike Coyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. 
Great to uh, hear iRhythm story. You've got a lot of news to discuss, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And I and I really do want to learn a lot more about your offerings going forward. But uh, we always start these conversations with uh, learning a little bit about the guest. How did uh, how did you find your way, Mike, into the into the med tech industry? Ah, well, I'm a engineer by training. Oh. Yeah, I kind of graduated as a chemical engineer and actually started life uh, with a pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, doing a development of, you know, manufacturing processes for them. And uh, by a strange happenstance, I was uh, invited to go work with their toxicology division to uh, do instrumentation of, uh, uh, of animal models to look at, you know, real-time cardiovascular effects of drugs. And uh, as a result, kind of fell in love with uh, MedTech, uh, even before it was MedTech. So uh, <laughs> you know, now, now uh, I, I wound up coming back into their medical device division, and I've really spent the last, you know, 25, 30 years in cardiovascular uh, devices. How did you then find your way into uh, to Medtronic? So actually, as I mentioned, I um, have really been in the cardiovascular device side of the business for a long time, first with Eli Lilly. Um, and then um, uh, I actually went to St. Jude Medical when it was uh, right. just a $200 million company um, and uh, a heart valve company. And of course, um, was involved with a lot of the acquisition work that got them into cardiac rhythm and uh, atrial fibrillation and, and uh, other other areas. Wound up running uh, two of their businesses, one in, one in AF um, management. The other one was their cardiac rhythm business, pacemakers, implantable defibrillators, cardiac resynchronization devices. And um, wound up, um, you know, taking a little bit of a leave of absence in the late, you know, 2007, eight kind of time frame. Um, and then, uh, you know, tried some private equity, but I found it not quite uh, as operationally exciting as what I was used to. So I went bet. to Medtronic when they put together their cardiovascular device businesses. And I ran, uh, you know, that, you know, essentially $11 billion business uh, uh, for them uh, over, over uh, about an 11 year period. That's right. That's right. I have right here my notes about St. Jude. I missed that. I didn't realize though about the private equity uh, little hiatus there. So uh, yeah, I would think it's a different, uh, more more of a, a moving of numbers and dollars and less of a, of rolling your sleeves up and, and getting things done. Yeah, c- couldn't get rid of the engineer in me, so I you know, could just <laughs> embrace it. Had you uh, always had eyes and uh, desire to be a CEO? Was that uh, part of your long term plan? Sure. I, I, you know, had always had as a sort of a long-term objective, the, the opportunity to, to actually lead a, a, a fully integrated business that had its own P&L and uh, uh, was publicly traded. So um, obviously had a, a good opportunity across both St. Jude and, and Medtronic to run business, fully integrated businesses. Mm-hmm. But this is my first opportunity to actually uh, be a, a public company CEO. And, and how did that come, uh, come about? And what was it about the algorithm opportunity that was appealing? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have, as I said, spent most of my life doing therapeutic devices in cardiovascular. And of course, uh, all of that begins with the appropriate identification of a patient who uh, needs to be treated. And I've always felt uh, that, you know, Holter technology, event recorder technology was, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old uh, technology and was due to be disrupted. And so I've been watching iRhythm from afar, um, mostly because I was really intrigued with their application of uh, uh, machine learned to deep learned um, algorithms uh, to the application of, of doing electrocardiogram analysis. And, uh, uh, you know, when the opportunity came that, uh, you know, Kevin King, who had, had built up the company, uh, was going to be leaving, uh, it, it seemed uh, retiring. It seemed like a really good uh, opportunity for me to uh, uh, come into a business that I saw as having multiple growth vectors, continued, you know, sort of penetration of the, of the, um, uh, the Holter monitor market here in the United States. Mm-hmm absolute green field for growth of this technology outside the United States. And, and uh, one of the more exciting things to me is 
there's a, you know, right now we, we, we principally focus on symptomatic arrhythmia patients, but there is a huge opportunity, especially in the identification of atrial fibrillation and asymptomatic patients that I think the iRhythm technology is particularly well suited to. So um, those are all kind of growth vectors that I'm interested in building on. And, and you know, I, I actually think the core technology the company has in advanced AI applications to biometrics can be applied to a lot of areas beyond simply the the uh, analysis of electrocardiograms for arrhythmias into things like sleep apnea or uh, heart failure. Um, and uh, over time, it'd be great to uh, take the company in those directions. Tell us a bit about how uh, how the device works and, and what it does quickly. Quick rundown for our listeners. Sure. So uh, the technology is a, a patch uh, technology that uh, basically is worn by the patient for 14 days. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, continuously records the electrocardiogram signal. And when the uh, and of course, the, the, the key is you got to be able to shower and do your normal uh, you know, life uh, with it on, which is the benefit of the ZO um, uh, technology. And then uh, the patient mails it in to, uh, to our intake centers, where we apply the advanced AI algorithms to actually look at that 20,000 minutes of electrocardiogram information to look for those needles in the haystack, right? The, the arrhythmias that uh, are there. And uh, um, essentially 13 different types of arrhythmias are, are identified through the AI a- application. They are confirmed by a very large uh, team of certified cardiac technicians we have here um, on staff and a report is generated for the physician. So uh, uh, that uh, basically steers them to treatable arrhythmias. And then the, the physician can very easily uh, integrate that information into their EHR where, you know, have it on their phone uh, to be able to then do the diagnosis and treat the patient. How much more data is the physician getting from, from Zio than from the more traditional uh, standards? Sure. Well, a typical Holter monitor is worn for, you know, uh, up to 48 hours, but frankly, it's mostly 24 hours because mm-hmm. patients don't like wearing them. Um, so um, uh, the the amount of information that uh, uh, that we are collecting in that 14-day period is, is, you know, at least 14 times what uh, would typically be seen in a Holter monitor. And of course, that becomes the challenge of being able to efficiently analyze uh, that amount of data and look for these these arrhythmias. But what we found is many patients don't exhibit those arrhythmias in that first 24-hour period. um, And that oftentimes they have multiple arrhythmias that uh, actually show up over the course of that time period. So Mm -hmm. um, the the typical patient uh, who gets a Holter will only have about a a 24% yield on correct diagnosis in that first 24 hours. Whereas when you wear it 14 days in a ZO system and you overlay our advanced AI technologies, about 97% of the patients will have a confirmed diagnosis of either an existing arrhythmia or confirm that the symptoms they're feeling are not caused by heart conditions. I wonder how you viewed iRhythm when you were at Medtronic uh, as as a complement or as a not a competitor, but how did, how did, it, how did their offerings and their service uh, fit into to what were you doing, what you were doing there. And I wonder if there are any surprises on the technology when you moved over to either. What did you learn that uh, perhaps you didn't see when you were at another company looking from the outside? Sure. Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is, you know, everything starts for the, for the cardiac rhythm businesses of, of a Medtronic or a Boston Scientific or, a, or a, a, an Abbott uh, um, on, uh, or, or even a J&J's, you know, ablation business, identification of a patient who needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. And so looking for 
you know, slow heart rates, looking for fast heart rates, looking for atrial fibrillation is important to being able to identify patients who then can get a pacemaker or an implantable defibrillator or, or, or an ablation um, procedure. So the, this is really the start of all of that. What I think is the most <laughs> interesting thing about the, the technology, though, is that by um, actually uh, looking carefully using AI techniques, um, there's a lot more information in the data that those companies already have in their pacemakers and ICDs that they could be looking for. Hmm. Um, and and applications of this approach, I think, could, can uh, be used in other, other uh, parts of medicine. Interesting. So iRhythm has been uh, one of the high-flying companies in digital health that went public in 2016. It had was really one of the leaders in the space, kind of building. A, it was one of the first so-called digital health companies, although it's more than that, to to really produce and get on the public markets and and demonstrate that that these ideas could become big businesses. What has uh, what has occurred since you you. you Join the company. First of all, what's it like to take to take over for uh, a founding CEO like like Kevin, uh, who sort of built this company? What's it like to come in? Do you do you operate as someone who's going to be carrying what had happened forward, or do you you obviously you come in with ideas of your own? But but what do you do as a new CEO to sort of make your own mark on a company like this? Well, I think it's important to really understand that the team that worked with Kevin, that Kevin assembled uh, to do this, um, you know, build this company is, uh, is very much the one that's operating the company today. And sure. that, uh, those, uh, those folks uh, have really a deep understanding of the service itself and the technology itself. Um, and, and my role is sort of to come in, I, I think, and, and really talk about what happens at the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talked about, you know, full, you know, market adoption of the, uh, of the, the service um, as a replacement for um, uh, essentially a, a, a technique in, in Holter monitors that's much more limited in what, it, in what it can do. And of course, global expansion of that is an important piece that, you know, I have a lot of experience with uh, from my, uh, my days with Medtronic in particular, uh, that, that can be very helpful uh, to a company that's really a U.S.-based organization. But then the other piece, uh, you know, that um, is really key to the long-term growth of the company is this idea of being able to generate the clinical and economic evidence uh, to be able to start to penetrate the asymptomatic atrial fibrillation um, uh, population where patients are at really elevated risk for very bad outcomes like strokes and heart failure decompensation, but they don't know it because they mm-hmm. don't have the technology. And so, and so or they don't have the diagnosis. And so it's important for us as, as an organization to really develop the rigorous clinical and economic evidence to drive that market adoption and, and to be able to speak to payers and to payer provider systems about not just the the, the benefits of the clinical uh, identification of these arrhythmias, but that patients actually have greater satisfaction. They'd, they'd rather wear a ZO patch for 14 days than wear a, a Holter monitor for 24 hours. Um, and even more importantly, that it lowers the overall costs to their healthcare system because patients are not coming back in for repeat testing. They're not having missed diagnoses that then result in emergency room visits. And, and working with the, the claims data of, of these patients, we're able to show that cost effectiveness and that's something I have a lot of experience with from my, my days at Petronic. So bringing those perspectives to a really high-performing team that already existed here is mm-hmm. really what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, that's uh, one of the challenges with the, the medical device industry, of course, is you can have all the, the greatest technology and, and the demand for a product, but uh, so much of uh, these companies' success and your success depends upon reimbursement, and you've been facing some some strong headwinds there. Talk a little bit about the last couple of months. I mean, you, you came on board, and suddenly there was uh, some, some changes to, uh, to to Medicare policy. Bring us up to speed on 
on what has happened to the coverage of iRhythm, and, and I'd love to learn how, some of the, the maneuvers you're, you're, uh, you're making to, uh, to move forward. Sure. Well, first, it's important to recognize a lot of the dynamics, all of the dynamics we're really talking about here are occurring on the Medicare side of the business. Sure. Um, so this is, uh, um, you know, about 25 percent of our of our total revenue is, is, is associated with Medicare applications of the ZO XT uh, product. Mm-hmm. So we've had very you know stable performance in the commercial uh, operations. So the, the 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 private pay side of our business who really you know have seen the benefits of the technology in terms of driving efficiency in their in their client uh, uh, hospitals in uh, getting better outcomes for their patients. Um, and so we've had very good you know sort of stable pricing, frankly, above Medicare pricing in the commercial um, uh, sector of our business for for many years. Mm -hmm. What's new is that uh, last year there was a um, uh, an approval of, of new permanent codes, CPT1 codes, uh, for this test, uh, the, 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 the three to seven day and seven to 14 day uh, use of the ZO technology to, to uh, identify arrhythmias. Um, and with the establishment of those codes, the old temporary pricing um, went away. And, uh, and when those codes were established as of January 1, new pricing had to be established. Um, but it's interesting when you think about a monitor for three days, versus one for 14 days, you get very different requirements, right? There are um, uh, relatively simple approaches where you could use a patch with Holter software to to actually generate a report for a um, three-day test, um, which obviously has much lower cost associated with it, but it has much lower uh, information content uh, in terms of the the, the arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. But that same code is going to be applied to any technology, whether it's our advanced uh, uh, technology or or something more simple. And so getting those codes established with single pricing has been challenging because obviously the the max, the the Medicare uh, um, uh, uh, providers uh, in the regions are looking at, uh, you know, essentially trying to drive the most efficient cost uh, structure they can for these tests. But uh, it gets complicated by the fact that there's only one code and there are multiple technologies that can can be brought to bear. Mm -hmm. So uh, we saw the the prevailing uh, pricing of of, uh, about $300 that had been in the Medicare system now for many years, uh, drop down with uh, the the announcements a week and a half ago from Novitas to to be down around 125 or $115, let's say for that for that code. So um, that is challenging for us because it's actually below the cost that we have to process a 14 day uh, electrocardiogram. And so we are working with Novitas, we're working with with uh, other Macs, um, and we're working with CMS to see if we can get the methodologies that are are uh, being applied here uh, to to be a little more uh, clear about uh, the, the costs and the benefits that, that we have with our system. So we've got work to do on our um, uh, Medicare payments, um, but um, we're, we're going to continue to service our customers while we work that through, um, even though it's below our cost, because we, we think long-term we can convince uh, uh, Medicare that it's in, it's in their best interest to, to actually have this service available. How hard-baked was the $300 amount in your business plan going forward, in your projections going forward? Were you counting on that maintenance? being maintained? Or were you anticipating that once these adjustments went through that there'd be a cut? And is the cut just larger than you thought it would be? Yeah, it, it's. Um, it, we thought uh, the, the we'd have st- uh, stable pricing because mm-hmm. that pricing had actually been established back in 2012 when the functionality of the system was considerably less than what it is today. So we thought um, while there's, of course, always you know a, a look at pricing and pricing pressure, 
um, the, 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 the enhanced functionality of the system, we thought actually justified a higher price. And in fact, that is what was presented to CMS last year in what's called the, the RUC AMA process, um, where uh, th- they actually were ascribing a value in the low 400s for the, for the service uh, based on that enhanced functionality that we were talking about. So it is a bit of a surprise, a big surprise to, to see the, the pricing established um, as, as low as it was in the, in the, um, uh, the Novitas uh, decision. But mm-hmm. as I said, I, you know, we're going back to them with additional data. We're, we're also pursuing the national pricing for these uh, codes um, with CMS. And we've pre- presented them in mid-March with some new methodologies that we think can be helpful in actually ascribing value to the advanced AI technology, um, which isn't valued in the approaches that are used down at the max. So um, if we are able to, to do that, um, you know, we think we can get that pricing uh, to be much more representative of, of uh, our true costs to go in to provide the service, but then you know, allow us to, to actually get the overall cost benefits to the system uh, by, by having it reasonably priced. How are you treating the, the fee-for-service Medicare patients going forward. I've seen some analysts say that you weren't going to service that population anymore, but then I saw you issued a statement saying you you would. What are you, what are you doing there going forward? So basically, yeah, obviously, you can you can imagine the concern of having um, the, the established pricing be below our costs, that it's not exactly a long-term sustainable proposition to be able to service the Medicare patients at that at that cost level. That that being said, um, you know, we think we have plenty of time, given the strength of the financial position of the company, our strong balance sheet, and the fact that even though it will take time, you know, we, we believe our data uh, support, you know, a higher uh, uh, cost point or you know price point. So, um, given the fact that most of our business is in the commercial uh, and the, the the client bill or or you know payer provider direct. Uh, payment uh, parts of uh, uh, of our model, um, and those are not directly impacted by the the, the Medicare pricing. Mm-hmm. We we think we have plenty of time to work through with our customer base, uh, you know, so or, or with the reimbursement authorities, how to get um, uh, reasonable pricing into the Medicare segment. Um, and so we're going to continue to service them while we do that work in parallel. Is there a concern that the the Medicare move is is a, sort of a leading indicator for private payers that they may follow their example and do the same? Well, certainly, um, you know, the, the the private payers are going to be looking at that that established pricing, and one of the reasons we were clear about it being below our cost was to make it clear that it's it's not a, a price point we can service permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, uh, if we if we can't get it uh, can't get it addressed, um, but the ni- the nice thing we found about our interactions with the commercial payers is that they're very interested in the total cost to serve. You know, what what the total impact on their costs are of having a a, a technology that. Uh, it, you know, maybe a little more expensive upfront than, you know, things like ultra monitors, but actually drives, you know, better utilization of resources by not having a bunch of repeat testing, not having a bunch of inappropriate hospitalizations for uh, ER visits because, you know, diagnoses were missed. Um, and and so we, we uh, find them very receptive to the data that we show about the high, you know, diagnostic yield that they get with the uh, technology mm-hmm. and how that results in not only better patient outcomes, but lower overall costs to their system. How does having players like Boston Scientific moving into the sector, getting big, 
getting a real critical mass of other companies that are looking to provide the service. How does that affect your argument? I would imagine that if there's more people providing this service, then it's it it's uh, it's a validation of sorts. I'm obviously they're competitors for the same business, but there is a there is a demonstration that there's a lot of value here if many companies going after it. How does the landscape sort of help your your planning going forward? Well, I think it it truly is validation of the importance of the segment, right? Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, uh, a Boston Scientific has an interest not just in uh, you know sort of uh, the, the 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 businesses of Preventus as they exist today, but in driving appropriate diagnosis of patients with things like atrial fibrillation and 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 heart block because they have therapeutic devices that actually will uh, service those those markets. So uh, by actually getting a much more efficient uh, identification of patients, um, they, they uh, as as I would uh, view it, are are counting on the fact that there'll be much more appropriate therapy. Therapy for for uh, for patients. So um, so you know we view it as a huge validation of the of the opportunity in the in the segment and why you know traditional Holter monitoring should be a much smaller part of the market than it is it has been historically. And obviously we welcome uh, others uh, you know joining us in that messaging because. Sure. Uh, our, our biggest uh, competitor here is the inertia of, of you know, uh, older Holter technology and not recognizing what's being left on the table from the patient's perspective by not using more advanced AI-enabled approaches. Well, that's a great point. I mean, just looking forward, is this a, is this a situation that you grow yourself out of by just getting to more and more patients and letting them know that this technology is there? And, and how do you do that? I mean, just this conversation for me, it leaves it a no-brainer as to how if I ever had to deal with this issue, I, which product I would want to use, I'd obviously want to use yours. Well, it's it's uh, certainly this technology is is much more patient friendly, um, as as I said, and and much more effective at at getting it to a definitive diagnosis. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I do think um, that is is something that um, we're going to continue to to sort of focus on and and, uh, and validate. And it's and it's interesting when we did the announcement a week and a half ago uh, of the Novitas um, uh, uh, rate and its impact on our business. We also pre-announced our Q1, you know, sort of unit performance benefits, and uh, actually saw you know a nine percent growth in Q1 over Q4 of <laughs> utilization of the service. So um, there there is tremendous. Uh, uh, physician and patient interest uh, in the in the technology, and we're still you know twenty percent ish penetrated uh, into the uh, into the U.S. arrhythmia detection market. So there's plenty of growth. It's really just a question of making sure we get appropriate payment uh, for the for the technology. And how do you pursue the the asymptomatic? market. I mean, if, if someone's asymptomatic, they don't know they have this issue. I mean, this isn't something that they'd wear on an Apple watch or something and they're just tracking all the time, is it? I mean, how do you approach that market? So there's a very well-established approach to looking at clinical parameters to indicate a patient's um, risk of developing atrial fibrillation. It's called the chads vast score. And what it, what it is, is if you, if you have certain conditions, hypertension, if you're above a certain age, if you've had a prior stroke, you get a score. And, and basically what we have done in conjunction with actually uh, pharmaceutical partners uh, is to identify patients who don't have frank arrhythmias, don't have a diagnosed arrhythmia, but have higher chads vast mm. scores. Um, and then, um, prophylactically used the uh, screening technology of the ZO uh, XT service 
to see if they actually had um, uh, atrial fibrillation uh, events. And as it turned out in the the, the what's called MSTOP study that we did, um, it, the, about 5% of the patients who have these elevated scores are actually in atrial fibrillation and they don't know it. And if you didn't wow. use the, the, the patch, um, then only about half of 1% of those patients would get diagnosed. And the reason that's important is because if, if you know they have atrial fibrillation, you can put them on oral anticoagulation medications and lower their stroke risk by 80%. And so we've now shown three-year data that showed a, a, a significant improvement in very hard outcomes like rehospitalization and bleed rates uh, from patients who actually were screened using the, the ZOXT uh, technology. So that's going to be our model kind of going forward. We're, we're partnering with uh, uh, pharma companies to uh, uh, create much larger data sets so that we can uh, impact guidelines and, and maybe even more importantly, sit down with payers and payer provider systems and show them that they can lower their own improve outcomes and lower overall costs of, of very expensive events like uh, strokes uh, by uh, doing pro- prophylactic screening using the, the technology. Oh, that's a great point. Anyone responsible for patient costs would have to be listening to that. You mentioned partners. Uh, you had a, a partnership with Verily or have one. Uh, can you to speak a bit about the, uh, the product that may be coming out in connection with that? Sure. Well, obviously, that's a, that's a, a partnership that is still in its relatively early stages of being able to mm-hmm. uh, uh, clinically and, and um, evaluate the, the the opportunity here. But the thought process is that uh, uh, we've we've demonstrated just with the Zio technology that that duration of monitoring can really help improve your diagnostic yield. And uh, the, the the concept here is if wearing a patch on the chest for two weeks. Is, is helpful in terms of uh, really driving much better identification of arrhythmias. Can we identify patients at elevated risk for atrial fibrillation by actually having a wrist-borne um, sensor that is a, a, you know, the, the equivalent of a watch, but um, that is using advanced mm-hmm. AI technology to actually screen the, uh, the, the signals coming off of the, uh, off of the watch. And so we've partnered with uh, Verily to <clears throat> develop a prototype, and we are uh, going to use that technology once it is FDA approved to actually do screening uh, uh, in, in real you know, patients, clinical testing, uh, to see if we have a sufficiently sensitive and specific indicator of atrial fibrillation that we could either put them on a ZO patch if they uh, had, had certain indicators to confirm the presence of the arrhythmia or, or even move right to therapy if, uh, if, if it's sufficiently specific, right? So, um, so that work is ongoing and, um, you know, a, a, an exciting potential future development for the company. Final question directed more to you and your move to from Medtronic, a larger company with lots of different products to iRhythm, a really focused company with, with a, a single large platform. I wonder what has been the experience being a CEO at a company that had received seismic a seismic change in payment, or at least a, a considerable change in, in, in how revenue could come in. How do you sort of cope with that sort of situation? I, I almost called it a crisis. Is it a crisis management situation? Is it just a, allowing people the time to sort of absorb what happened and, and, and find a new way forward? What have, what have the past four months been like for you? Well, again, you know, a bit of a surprise given that the um, the the data were really posted in about my second week, uh, third, third <laughs> week in the company. So, uh, being able to, uh, to to see the challenge that was going to be coming in the Medicare reimbursement segment um, uh, via the, the, the Novitas was was a bit of a surprise. But uh, as I said, the underlying appeal of the service. Um, and the fact that we have commercial payers who are recognizing the value and, and helping support us as we kind of, you know, buy the time, if you will, to, to actually have these substantive discussions with, uh, uh, with, with Medicare CMS 
uh, to 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 actually get you know established uh, uh, pricing that that it's in an acceptable range. I think we have time to to actually do this because the company's well capitalized. Um, we were uh, you know essentially at break even uh, uh, before the the, uh, the 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 this change. Um, we can absorb this um, and and work with uh, the 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 payers to actually get uh, appropriate uh, reimbursement. And most importantly, we continue to have the validation of the the clinical evidence that shows it's just a better approach for the the whole quadruple aim. Better for patients, better for uh, patient flow through the hospital system. It's better for clinical outcomes, and of course, it's better. It lowers the overall cost of of uh, of care. So those things are uh, working in our favor. So we'll we'll turn those into advantage. Great. Lots, lots of work for the engineer and you to, uh, yeah, to get exactly. done for sure. Excellent, Mike. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you uh, answering the questions and appearing on, on the podcast. It's great to have you. All right. Well, I appreciate the invitation and we'll uh, uh, look forward to another visit sometime in the future. All right, Chris Newmarker. It's wrap time. What do we like to tell folks at this point in the podcast? I am on social media. Yay! I am with it. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me, Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. I'm on Twitter at Newmarker. Um, always, always, always open to new ideas, uh, new pitches, uh, feedback on how we're doing. So reach out to me. And I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And, and Chris, you'll, you're going to laugh, but uh, I, I almost wasn't going to mention our intention to gather on Clubhouse at 1 p.m. on Wednesdays because we haven't done it the last couple of weeks. But I got an email this morning from Megan Ziemba, who was on with us a few weeks ago. And she has been in contact with someone she met on our clubhouse. And that person is asking, why haven't they had another clubhouse session? So, Chris, the, the, the people. Wow, we're missed. The people demand clubhouse. So uh, we'll, right. I'll make a little effort to try to get something together for, for next week, 1 p.m. Eastern on clubhouse. And uh, we'll have a, a few right. guests lined up. So are you going to dust out our clubhouse or should I? We've got, get, uh, we'll get the robot report guys to send one of their robot Roombas there and maybe they can clean it up. Oh, I love it. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Clean clubhouse. You know, get it all done. <laughs> tidy. <laughs> tidy. So yes. So we'll clean out that clubhouse and uh, we'll, we'll try to get folks virtually together again. Get, get those, that set of magic tree house books, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like, like set in order, you know, like, you know, cause yeah, it'll be good. Sounds good great. Times. Yeah. All right, Chris Newmarker, great job today. Thank you, folks, for joining us on this podcast. Please do subscribe to this podcast and please do subscribe to the Medtronic Talks podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we will uh, be releasing the, uh, the, the first, well, the first two episodes are available on SoundCloud. I'll send out the second episode through Device Talks uh, next week. So you'll have a little bit of uh, a little bit of extra podcast fun. You can listen to that as well. But the best way to keep tabs on what's going on with Medtronic Talks is to subscribe. So subscribe to Medtronic Talks on all of your podcast players. And of course, I know you've already subscribed to Device Talks Weekly, but if you've let that one slip, please do subscribe to that also. And in the case of both podcasts, please share it. Tell your friends and colleagues and uh, connect to Chris like, and I. Like, follow, subscribe. There it is. The there trick. we go, man. We have to get a t-shirt with that saying. The like, follow, on, subscribe. On uh, devicetalks.com backslash tacky merch. So we'll get it. We'll get a t-shirt going. I think we, I think we got something going on. 
get yeah, the, get the spinners, spinners, get t-shirts. No homebrew vaccine kits. Not, <laughs> not doing it. Nope. Not, I think that might require some regulation, no. and I don't want to. I don't want to get involved. With Do that. not want to get involved with the federal court system. No, let's no, stay away no, from that. Yeah, stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, folks. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talk Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Hey, take care. Get vaccinated soon. <laughs> <laughs>